go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! So, dude, dude, dude. Yes. Nia DaCosta. Oh, my God. That was the best news of this whole summer for me. Almost made up for the fact that I'm still sitting around waiting for Candyman. The fact that Nia DaCosta is going to be directing the next installment of my favorite superheroes movie. So, I saw Little Woods in theaters. I took a taxi with two friends from our side of Hollywood to the other side of Hollywood. It's very expensive, but when you split it between three people, it's not that bad. Sweet. Um, because she was doing a Q&A with Tessa Thompson. Oh, wow. It was very much worth the trek from the east side to the west side, which is a very L.A. thing. And if you have L.A. listeners, they know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, she was so articulate about how she came up with this story, how she formulated the way she wanted the story to look and the way that she, you know, worked so closely with Tessa to bring this, this vision to life. Mm -hmm. And, and I can only imagine she brought that same, you know, beautiful attention to detail to to the Candyman world. Right. Right. And then we know that Brie is this amazing collaborator with her directors. So just fathoming how, what the two of them together could do is just, I cannot wait. Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you are listening to Matt Nakast's presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is dispatch number 11. Our mission is this. COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives, and obviously that includes being able to go to the movies. That means that our usual discussions of cinematic passion and perspective need to shift. However, it doesn't mean that the overall film discussion has to stop. So while we wait for the whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best film films of the decade gone by instead of the new releases we usually cover. I have said it before on this show and I will say it again. Few people I've encountered have affected my movie watching habits as much as today's guest. She's done everything from spark my deeper interest in classics to foster a curiosity about film noir. Most of all, though, as you could tell by that introduction, she has long been a champion for women in film and pushed me to go further and further in an ongoing quest for stories told by female filmmakers. And my friends, I am better for it. Last year at TIFF, after nine years or so of strictly virtual interaction, I finally got the chance to sit down for coffee and conversation with this woman, and it was one of the highlights of my festival. She's one of my most frequent guests on the matinee cast, so it's fitting that she is included in the Chronicles. Please welcome the brains behind cinema fanatic, Mariah E. Gates is here. How are you, Miss Gates? You know, I'm, pre- I'm doing pretty good. It's been a weird summer. <laughs> no it's been kidding. a weird year. Yeah. It's been weird everything, but I will say that was my first time in Toronto, in Canada, at TIFF, all of those things. And it was so exciting that I finally, after I feel like we have been talking, now it's been 10 years. That's a long time to like not meet somebody. So right? it's very exciting. And it, it did not disappoint. Like no, nothing about Toronto disappointed. And that, that included our lovely, lovely 
lovely meal. Um, while we are talking about uh, my guest, Miss Gates, we need to very, very specifically say off the top of the show, Mariah's opinions within this own podcast are her own and do not inflect anything to do with her projects or employ that is that needs to be made crystal clear. And I'm really happy that Mariah uh, comes on and does give her own opinions because they are valuable and interesting. One thing off the top as well, as far as the show is concerned, uh, I am one show away from taking a September hiatus. There will probably be one or two TIFF-centric shows in September, but generally speaking, I take the month of September off just to kind of reset myself. And I mentioned this as much in the show notes of last episode, but I didn't really hear much back. I'm curious about what listeners uh, think about how we should approach the rest of 2020. There are new films that have made the rounds on demand, um, on VOD, uh, you know, perhaps cinemas will open up in between now and the time the ball drops. And I'm wondering if people think we should keep going with the, uh, you know, the decade shows, the Winchester Chronicles, or if we should turn the regular matinee cast back on and talk about some of the films that we've seen in 2020. Um, you know, there, there's been fantastic stuff like uh, the five bloods and um, first cow and, and even things like Palm Springs that I think were, are worthy of conversation, but I'm not sure how people um, would approach it from what they've seen and what they may not have seen. So let me know what you think. Should I keep going with the Winchester Chronicles or should I go back to the matinee cast when October rolls around um, and uh, drop me a dime in all the usual places? Can I yes, say yes, yes, yes. About first cow? Yeah. Okay. I just have to share this. So first cow was the last film I saw in theaters this year. Um, and I saw it at like a, this is like a humble brag. I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> I saw it at like a, a pre screening, like I was on a tastemaker list, which I don't understand, but I will 100% take. And, um, at this tastemaker screening of first cow, Kelly was there, but so was Gus Van Zant and Todd Haynes. And I was like, this is, this is too much. Holy crap. So, you know, if I'm going to go out of 2020, like that's the only movie, the last movie I saw in theaters, like it was it was like such a good film and then such a surreal experience. I can live on that. You know? I, I would, I totally would too. That, that certainly beats, <laughs> I mean, my, my last screening before they shut the lights off was invisible man. And I'm, I'm certain that you got me beat. So yeah, there we go. You know, we, we could be talking some, about stuff like that. So let me know people, what do you want? What, what should I be doing? I am, I am counting on you to give me direction. On our 11th Dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles, we will be discussing Drive. We will be turning the record over to play the other side, but first we begin with Creature Comforts. So Creature Comforts is our section where we talk about what we've been occupying ourselves with while we don't move around so much, while we stay away from things like screenings and concerts and travel and all the usual trappings of a normal life. Uh, Mariah, get us started. What's something you've been uh, busying yourself with while you've been locked down? Uh, during the first month, anyways, I went really hard learning Japanese. Okay. Um, because I always, I always wanted to learn Japanese and I was like, well not going anywhere else. I'm not doing anything with my free time. So I, I did an online or not an online, like an app course and I didn't finish it. I need to actually finish it. Um, but theoretically I am quasi fluent in Japanese now. And I didn't, couldn't really say anything beyond like, you know, sayonara before. <laughs> right. 
right. so that that was fun like how did that pop into your head as something you wanted like were you just like I, completely spitballing ideas or no i wanted to learn japanese when i was in college i'm kind of a, like a an aspiring polyglot in that i always want to learn a bunch of languages but i never necessarily do it so i i have a degree in french so like okay. i i mastered french and then I was in college. I did Arabic for one summer, but it was like a 20 or 10 unit course. So at the end of the summer, I was fluent in Arabic, but now I can only say, which means coffee with, with milk. Like that's all I have left. Um, and Al-Udab Al-Mukarin, which means comparative literature. That's all of my Arabic. Right. Um, and then, but I was also at one point I wanted, I read a book by Tanazaki that I loved and I was like, oh, I want to read this in the original because it's like reading French books and the original French is so much better. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to learn Japanese, but then I didn't. And then when I was in grad school, I learned Italian because I fell in love with Marcello Mastroianni, as you do. And so I used this app called Busu to learn Italian. And my Italian's pretty good. It's not as good as my French, but it's decent. Like I can watch an Italian movie and I don't need the subtitles. Um, and I could probably get by in Italy if you told me I 100% couldn't speak English. So when the pandemic happened and quarantine happened and I was like, well, I'm stuck in my house. Um, I was like, well, I wonder if that app still exists and maybe I can do Italian this time because the, the way that the app worked was very much kind of the way that I like to learn. It, it just felt very intuitive. Sure. Um, and lo and behold, it, it still existed and they have Japanese can add Japanese too. So have you tested <laughs> it out? Like, have you watched some, uh, have you watched some Kurosawa or some Ozu and seen uh, if you can turn I, off the subtitles I, I yet? Did, um, while I was using the app, you know, frequently, um, Mubi was doing like a retrospective of the films of, of uh, Yuzo Kawashima, who was a filmmaker whose films never really made it outside of Japan. But mm -hmm. he was sort of a um, contemporary of Ozu and started making his films in the 30s, 30s and 50s. And um, they're amazing, like stunning films humanist in the way that Ozu is and but really um like sh sharply romantic okay and just just stunning stuff and, and I watched you know a handful of Ozu's that I hadn't like I hadn't seen flavor of green tea over rice and that was beautiful but I watched probably in March and April like I don't know 25 so I'd seen Japanese films like when Filmstruck was closing down one of my biggest regrets was that I didn't watch all the Japanese cinema. So in that last month of Filmstruck, I like I probably watched like 50 Japanese movies. But I didn't get to everything because now they're they're on migrated over Criterion Channel. They have hundreds, like yeah, hundreds yeah. of Japanese films. And you know, I go through phases where I'm like, this is all I'm watching, and then I'll watch you know a whole month of just Japanese cinema. Um, but what I really liked about Ka Kawashima is that his films are that like post-war struggle between modernity and and traditional i'm not the hugest fan of kurosawa to be honest okay mostly because i love his earlier films that were these post-war humanist you know comedy drama things and and to some extent akira which is not obviously a comedy but akira is very humanist and kind of about angst the angst of the you know changing yeah. ways yeah of of japan and i love those films the most and I think Kawashima really hits on of what it wasn't just in Japan too. It was like everything post war had this big, almost every country had this big revolution, cultural revolution happen in the forties, fifties, sixties. And, and um, I just love 
cinema that's about that. And Kawashima just does it so beautifully. And you're getting that extra dose now that you can catch a little bit more Japanese. It was fun to watch it and like get, because they, the, they add um, inflections and things. And a, a lot of, a lot of it is like the same words, but it's, it's said a little differently and that's, and that's makes it a different word. Right. And like way more so than English. Um, and there's also like little like um, things that they'll add to a sentence to, to make it, you know, proper um, or to show you, you respect. And so you'll hear uh, the same sound a lot. And you're like, why do I keep hearing the sound? It's because they've added, they add it to be polite. Right. Um, right. So I was, I was picking up on, on some of the grammatical things that's that I was so learning. Cool. I was like, ah, oh, that's why they're always making that sound. See, now, now I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of regretting that I didn't, I mean, I've still got time. I could, I could start tomorrow. Um, actually, you know, what? I'd probably, I probably, I think I'm going to give that a go. I'm going to try to see if I can, pick up a language while I'm done. Cause that's like one of those, one of those betterment things. I am happy that I've been focusing on. Um, I've been trying to focus on physical and mental health while I've been off and, and, and locked down and everything, but you're right. I could push myself a little bit more and see if I can pick up a new skill. And that's the kind of thing that is not going to like go away when this is all done. That's I'm like, that's really impressive to hear. I rewatched a film last night. Um, cause my wife hadn't seen it yet. And we were looking for something kind of light to watch. Like we've been watching a lot of, heavy things lately so we wanted and plus like the mood of the world is really a bummer so we were looking for something a little bit more upbeat and uh we last night watched the 2019 film by uh Gurinder chada we watched blinded by the light yay <laughs> um you, i love that movie i know you do because you nudged me towards that movie when we talked last year and i remember specifically asking you i'm like okay hold on are you telling me to watch it because of Bruce? Because I know you're, you know, like the world's biggest boss man. <laughs> or are you telling me to watch it because it's legitimately yeah. good? And you're like, no, 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 no. It's a good movie. You're like, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's both. It like, is. If yeah. you're a boss fan, you get a lot out of it. Oh, man. And if you are just someone who likes a good movie, you also get a good movie. It's Everyone wins. It is. <laughs> um, I love that. It's a so uh, Gurinder Chada. She is the woman who directed Bend It Like Beckham. Uh, Jesus, seventeen years ago now, um, and I like I, I feel like she kind of got lost in the shuffle a little bit. I know she's done a whole bunch of other projects since then, but for one reason or another, I feel like they kind of never bubbled up the same way that um, Bend It Like Beckham did. This movie. Um, makes a nice little match set with that film. Like they're not, it's not like she's just telling the, you know, the, the Muslim in England story all over again. Um, it's, it's, she's telling a, a, a you know, she's kind of casting the camera into a different corner and, you know, in some ways telling similar themes, but framing it around a whole new experience, which I loved. She finds comparable stories that probably remind her of what her life growing up was like. Mm -hmm. And then, and then tells them in a way that fits with contemporary audiences. So like Bennett, like Beckham was set contemporarily set, right? Yeah. This one is set in the eighties. You, you almost get even a closer probably to what she grew up with. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to see, how many different ways i mean because obviously everybody's immigrant experience is different oh, totally. and, but there's there's commonalities so like 
the, the experience with the parents are very similar in both stories because everybody struggles with their parents, right? And then the immigrant struggle with parents is a whole nother layer to the um, basic struggle that every kid has with their parent. And then you add that extra layer to it. And um, I think she does a really great job of finding the universality in these specifics. Uh, you know, in this particular case, she frames that around this music that has, you know, to to the masses, not necessarily to the people who have always loved, eat, slept, and breathed Bruce, but to the masses, has drifted in and out of um, cool. You know, like he Springsteen arrived and he's cool. And then all of a sudden he becomes kind of commercial and then he's not cool anymore. And then you get to the end of the 20th century and he's, you know, the person who's best embodying uh, the new state of the world. And, you know, now I kind of think we're sort of at the other end of that turn again and listening to the way his songs um do still embody the everyday life, whether or not they're popular, critically well-received, cool, what have you, his like his lyrics and his words have always spoken to the plight of the working person, whether they are American, English, uh, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, what have you. And it's beautiful to see, and so damn charming to see the way that this film grinds all that out. The other thing that I love about it is that it is in the specific of Springsteen. And obviously that's why I loved it because Springsteen came into my life. I was a little bit older than him, but Springsteen came into my life in a big way and, and really changed everything right in a very similar way with the lyrics. But what, what I love about it is it doesn't necessarily have to be Springsteen. Oh, no. Because the, the, to, to me, the big thing in there is about the way that fandom can bring, can bring purpose into your life in a way that sometimes is dismissed. I think we kind of dismiss fandom. And fandom can get dark and dangerous. This is true. But it also it can, get, it can, it can float you. So, like, you know, the way that we met via the Internet, that was – at one of my lowest times in my life, I didn't have a job. It was during the recession and I was living in the back of my parents' house and it was really shitty. And the fandom that saved me then was movies. Like all I had in my life was movies and talking about movies. And that really gave me a purpose. Right. And I feel like what that movie is saying is that fandom can come in and lift you and give you a push towards who you want to be, right? And I think most people who, a lot of people have found some fandom that helps keep them going in the midst of like the misery that is being a human, right? Mm -hmm. And and I, I, love, I love seeing a movie that truly understands the power of that and respects it and doesn't look down on the human need for that. You know, you can find something in, in these, in these pieces of, of art and these pieces of culture that happen to, to come into your life, you know, when you, when you don't expect it and you can use it to, you know, make the world a better place. I think, I think that's, that's usually my, my kind of puzzlement when it comes to fans is if you're, if your fandom turns into, um, fixation and arguments and negativity and gatekeeping and that kind of thing. I don't understand how that, you know, is, is really helping. But, you know, meanwhile, if it's, if it's fandom that is, 
inspiring to you and helping you treat people better and helping you understand yourself better and and you know leaving your mark on the world as as the main character of um blinded by the light is is trying to do i think that that's a really really good thing as you say just as a springsteen fan there are some like deep cut oh yeah uh, of the music like the use of um independence day towards the end when he's in new jersey like I lost it. That was such a perfect <laughs> needle drop where you're like, well, obviously, Gurinda also like knows her spring scene really well. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, yeah. It's, love it's, it. it's, it's so much fun. It's, it's making the rounds on demand and on the various platforms now. Um, it, it was kind of dropped to the end of last summer and not really given its proper due, but it's, it's a charming little movie. It's so much fun. It will lift you up. Um, blinded by the light. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful that Mariah pointed me towards it and I really highly recommend it after coming back to it about a year later. That's our creature comforts for this week, but we have a feature to get back. We've got a humdinger this time around. Come on back right after this. We're going to be talking about <laughs> drive in just a second, people. Drive was released in 2011. It was directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, written by Hussein Amini, based on the book by James Salas. It stars Ryan Gosling, Carey Mulligan, Brian Cranston, Oscar Isaac, Christina Hendricks, Ron Perlman, and Albert Brooks. Drive is about a stunt driver in Los Angeles, played by Ryan Gosling. The character doesn't have a name, so for the purposes of this conversation, we will just refer to him as Driver. While he works in the business by day and puts in time with his friend Shannon's body shop at night, his most lucrative hustle is in the dead of night when he is a getaway driver for any 'er ne'er-do-well that wishes to hire him. Eventually, Shannon proposes a plan to some L.A. mobsters, played by Ron Perlman and Albert Brooks. The plan is to stake Driver as a stock car racer, and a tenuous deal is reached. Meanwhile, Driver starts to get friendly with his neighbor, Irene. That's Carrie Mulligan. He helps her and her son out, being a help around the house and keeping sweet company, until her husband, Standard, that's Oscar Isaac, is released early from prison. Just days later, though, Driver is helping Irene's husband fend off mob enforcers and looking to collect on debt. Driver and Standard hatch a plan, pull off a job, pay the debt, and walk away clean. Unfortunately, things aren't that simple, and all involved get into a very tangled and very violent mess. Oddly enough, Drive only received one Oscar nomination for Best Sound. That's fitting, though, because along with the fact that the film sounds incredible, it often toggles between quiet and calamity. In the same way, the plot itself jockeys between quiet contemplation and pure chaos. So pop quiz, Hotshot, which of those two elements of this movie interests you more? The quiet contemplation that's in the fevered looks between Gosling and Mulligan and Isaac and so on and so on, or the pure chaos of driving down the highway, avoiding shotguns, and trying to keep your Ford Mustang on the road? Oh my god, I cannot choose. Like, are you (laughs) kidding me? I will say that when the Oscar nominations came out, I was very mad about like Albert Brooks and the screenplay and and Gosling even. But the one nomination that I said it better get or I was going to like 
go down there and, you know, stage a protest was sound. There's very few sound nominations where I feel like the sound is a character in the film. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of times the sound nominations go to like most sound. Right, right. So like this was this was a case where the soundscape was such an important world. And like some examples of ones where I felt like the soundscape was great and it got ignored is like um, Mary Mar was it Mary Martha Marcy May Marlene? Oh yeah, I love you that know movie. The film yeah, about? yeah. So they use sound to keep you disoriented, so you don't know which part of the story you're in. Like that's how kind of the, how the editing works, right? And it's glorious, right. and it gets you real confused, just the same way that she is, and it it puts you in the world of the character, completely ignored. Um, a couple of years ago, the um, the sound. In Phantom Thread, I'm like, oh god, yeah, yeah, yeah. I okay? remember that. That sound like deserved oh a nomination god. for the buttering of toast alone. That that's what I'm saying. <laughs> like that was such a creative use of sound. And and what I love about the sound in Drive is it's it's very creative in that it exactly what you said. There's the moments like, especially if you hear it in a theater with really really good sound. There's the way that the sound of the of the driving mm -hmm. and the lights as you pass them at the opening sequence, it's so accurate and so beautifully captured. But then the sound of the chaotic moments is so layered and you, there's just it's like a wall of, of, of chaotic sound and it's it's beautiful it's just beautiful. I don't yeah. know. I love I love it. And I then on top of that, the way that they mix the soundtrack in with everything else, it's just like chef's kiss you know i love it <laughs> i mean it's it's crazy because like since we're since we're on this point of sound like one of those things i think about in terms of its its quieter moments is a scene in the late going where driver catches up to the mob the the kind of like lower level mid-management thug that set them up his name is cook and he catches up to him in this strip club like the dressing room of this like david lynch like strip club and yeah. he, he threatens cook with a hammer and at one point like he he's got he's got these leather driving gloves on and he tightens his grip on the hammer and you can just hear yes. the leather going like i can't do the noise because obviously it's oh, i'm not it's a foley so artist so but it's just you know it's it's perfect and you're just like your your skin just crawls knowing what he's going you surprised me when we came when it came time to talk about this show because we were so we were going to do a totally other film because i completely misread mariah's best of the decade list and when i realized i was on the wrong road and i said to you like what films like did you really love in this decade and you're like well my number one of the decade was drive and i'm like Okay, so first of all, we have not done a show at all about Drive since I've been podcasting since 2009, so check. But you threw me for a serious loop because I don't know <laughs> why, but I, this is not this would not have been my guess for the top film of the decade for you. What in a nutshell do you love I, about this I, movie? I actually I tweeted about this on New Year's Eve, I think, maybe, or a little bit before New Year's Eve, when everyone was doing their end of the year, best of the decade, or whatever. Right. And I was like, you know what? This was my favorite movie the year it came out. I saw it in theaters five times. Like, wow. when it was first out, my roommate and I, we went and saw it four times in a month. And then the fifth time was, like, a retro screening at the... It wasn't all that retro. It was, like the next spring like five years later yeah yeah yeah. Right. yeah yeah they showed it as a double with um take shelter which was like an oh, amazing that's a good night of the movies feature. yeah 
Um, yeah, and I just, I don't know, I've written about it a few times. I, 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 it was actually the last thing I did last year. Like, I closed the decade watching this movie. It just, it's everything I want in a movie, I guess. And part of it is, like, Carrie Mulligan's my favorite actress. I will watch her do literally anything. And I think she's luminous in this movie. I love the tension. I love there's this really stupid quote. And I mean stupid as a as a, um, a, a term of endearment here. Of course, yeah. This really stupid quote from, I think it's from Ryan, Gos- like a Ryan Gosling interview. But he, he was quoting what the director said to him, which was that he wanted to make like a John Hughes film with, Blood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm paraphrasing it. Gotcha. Much okay. Than that. Yeah, yeah. But like, basically, he wanted like blood and cotton candy. I think was part of the quote. Like, he just that's what he wanted, and I'm like, that's what he made, and I loved it. And watching it with the audiences, like every like the I don't know if it was the first time or the second time, but one of the times there were these like teenage girls there, or like maybe early twenties. Who are clearly just like Ryan Gosling fans from like right. the Notebook, oh, man. Or what have you? Which you know, like I was one of those. Obviously, I love sure. the Notebook. Um, I was, <laughs> you know, a teenager when that came out. But they were there for Ryan Gosling, right? And you know, there's spoiler alert: the scene where Christina Hendricks's head explodes. Yeah. Every single audience that I watched that with had a different reaction, and that was kind of fun. Um, but I, I will never forget the girls because they lost it they were not expecting that they could not handle it i don't think they'd ever seen a movie of that like kind before it was like their life before that and their life after that and it was just delightful to see all these different reactions and and it's one of the few movies like adrenaline style movies where every time i watch it i I get the same i get as pumped right it's really (laughs) funny for me because I originally came away from this movie a little cold. Like, I thought it was fine. On first watch during TIFF of 2011, I thought it was only fine. There was a lot of hype around it, and especially in, like, the community of, like, film nerds. Like, this this movie, the year that it dropped, was, like, beloved by film nerds. And I was like, okay, I don't know. I was like, I, 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 it's not... It's not bad. I would never come out here and say that that is a bad movie ever, 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 ever. But I'm like, I don't know if it's a great movie. And, you know, I got into the usual arguments and just kind of packed it away and moved on. And then I think about five or six months later, um, this is back, of course, in 2011, there were still uh, video stores that you could rent from. And what they used to do, of course, was they would sell off um their their stock as they would like kind of roll it out of rotation and they were usually cheap you know like you could buy a blu-ray of something that had just come out like a year or two ago for something like five bucks and i was like okay what the hell i'll buy drive so i bought drive for five bucks and i've watched it several more times over the last decade and i you know i'm obviously not quite on your level (laughs) um but I, I, I realized I also once saw it as a double feature with Taxi Driver. So I think oh I've actually God. seen it. I think I've actually seen it six times in that's, theaters. That's bonkers. Um, <laughs> I'm not on that level, but I certainly do like it. 
more than I did when I first saw it. Like those gaps, you know, those expectations have been tamped down. Those gaps have burnt themselves in. And I, I, I really, really do like it. I, you know, it, it wouldn't have made and probably didn't make my best of decade list, but I'm certainly warmer on it than I was when I first saw it. It's a interesting film to talk about on this series because just about everything else that we've talked about on this series were films that I fell hard for on first watch, whether it was Call Me By Your Name or or uh, Beast of the Southern Wild or Beginners, uh, you know, even even something like Inside Lewin Davis. They were all films that my heart just like beat out of my chest. And we only just didn't podcast about them because I couldn't really like slot them in. This is a film that I can't, you know, the first time I saw it, I was like, yeah, that was all right. And I was like, it's, it's really cool, but I don't know how much I really loved it but yet meanwhile it's found a place on my shelf and it's found a, you know it's found its way onto my screen over and over and over over the last 10 years like it might very well be like one of the movies i've seen the most <laughs> this might be ryan gosling's career performance i think so and i found this is a great segue i found the quote okay. it might not even been reffin it might actually be why ryan gosling made the movie it's from an interview he did with new york mag and the first question is, Drive seems somewhat commercial. And his response is, I wanted to make Pretty in Pink with a head smashing. Huh. So if you know me, Pretty in Pink is like my top three of all time. So it does kind of feel like Pretty in Pink with a head smashing as a Pretty in Pink fan. There's a follow-up to this, though. Um, the person goes with a head smashing, and he says, yeah, I wanted to make a violent John Hughes movie. Because John Hughes movies are perfect, or almost perfect. They just need a little violence. You need blood and cotton candy. So that's what we tried to make. <laughs> Which, John Hughes movies are not perfect. No. Pretty in Pink was not directed by John Hughes, though it was written by him. And that's why I think Pretty in Pink works, to be honest. I can feel what he means by that. I don't even think I could say it better than him. It is that, like, really cheesy romance. Because their romance is kind of cheesy. It's not cheesy because of the dialogue, but... You know, like there's like smiling at each other and blushing and you you want to blush and it's it's kind of cheesy, but it's really hot because they have such good chemistry. And then suddenly there's just like he's smashing somebody in an elevator and the, it's amazing. Yeah, you're like it. this whole bit that you're talking about. It's really it's it's in it's up early in like act one of the movie. And, you know, she, her car's broke down. So she takes it to the mechanic and, you know, he happens to work there. It's Shannon's garage. So he's like, oh, you two know each other. And, and you know, he a driver offers her this a ride home and he's like, Hey, you want to go somewhere else? And they take the drive through, um, that LA reservoir that is in like everything from like Greece to it's in uh, Terminator two. It's in a lot of LA movies. This, this like, you know, perpetually dry, uh, you know, rainfall overflow. Um, and they're driving along to this track by college, this real hero song that in any other movie would seem so on the nose, but somehow in this scene works, the whole thing is like dripping with honey and like golden hued out of, you know, this movie that so far has been like midnight blue and neon and yeah you're right it, it could you know if you squint and tilt your head just so it could be a john hughes movie in that moment it's so cheesy like the all the all of the soundtrack drops 
are super cheesy songs. Oh, yeah. But, like, first of all, I just read a couple of weeks ago that A Real Hero was inspired by Sully. You know, Sully, the... the no! Tom Hanks, Sully. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, you can look it up. That there's a whole verse about, like, the people... They, they list the number of the people that he saved on the airline and everything. And you're like, wow. Um, so that adds a whole nother layer. Like, did did... Did Nicholas Winding Refn know that the song was about Sully when he picked it? Probably, I don't know. yeah. Maybe he did, and he was <laughs> comparing Driver to that. I don't know. Um, but it makes you think. This doesn't always happen, but sometimes you mix the like experience of a movie in with your love of the movie, oh, sure. if that makes sense. Yep, yep. And, 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 and this movie holds up upon repeat viewings on its own, but the initial experience of watching this movie was so wonderful um because i had this roommate and we uh this is when i was in grad school and we would uh we had this like system where we would take every week we would write the names of movies and put them on um we had it like what are they called those little note cards and we put them on our refrigerator and we would like put an n or an m if i had seen it and a r if she'd seen it and um occasionally we'd see movies together and we'd put our initials or whatever and we we had like a free screening for the first time we saw it, and then we were like, "Shit, we need to like pay th- to see this movie and give them <laughs> our money." So we went again, and then I can't remember why we decided to see it a third time, and then a fourth time happened because we I think we went to a matinee or something, and we ended up putting our names so many times on the drive weekend that like the whole system was messed up. I don't know, even though it's extremely violent. And the weird thing is, and I'm sure this is why you were like this movie. I'm normally not a big fan of violent movies. I'm not, I'm not an action goer. I'm not a big fan of like Tarantino. I, I don't generally go see movies that are full of violence, but for some reason, this one, it works. And I think maybe part of it is the violence is so out. It's just so big that it almost doesn't feel real. Well, I think part I of it too is if I was to give this movie one single adjective across the board, this movie is economical. This movie gets in under two hours. This movie has a, a like a speaking role cast of nine people in this cast. Uh, and when it is violent, it is incredibly violent but it never lingers it has its bursts of ultra violence and then it moves on you know and it it goes forward and it doesn't ever revel in the blood or the viscera or or the you know the the absolute viciousness of what it's just done so i think maybe that's what makes the violence of this movie palatable is it is grotesque but it it's not grotesque in a way that really wants to linger in those moments and celebrate it. You know, it's like that just happened, but we got to keep on moving because we got shit to do. That That's kind of the crazy thing about this movie. I mean, this cast, like the casting director of this thing deserves a pay raise and award and both because I mean, to get two of these people onto the same, onto the same show would be awesome. To get this, you know, especially this core seven of Gosling, Mulligan, Cranston, Brooks, Isaac, Hendricks, and Perlman. Holy shit. That's amazing top to bottom. Yeah. And even the casting of like the the child, like, yeah. you know, child actors can sometimes 
come across really false, you know, and yeah, yeah, overly precocious, or you go the other way and they're, you can tell that they've never acted before and it feels weird that you're watching just a normal kid, right? Yeah. And and I think this kid is is similar to like the kids in in uh, me and you and everyone you know where like that especially the little kid in that one mm-hmm. where he really just feels like a a, a little kid, right. um, but not in the not in the like why am I watching this kind of way, but in a in a true sort of way. And I feel like this kid in this in this film does that too. And the the connection that he has with Gosling's character is is really wonderful because got you know. He talks to him like he's an adult. Like, they talk to each other like they're uh, equals, right? Yeah, like and they're, it, like it's they're not buddies. like in Jerry Maguire where, yeah, it's not like Jerry Maguire where the kid was overly precocious. And, you know, like, there's a very similar couch scene. And I love Jerry Maguire. But there's a very similar couch scene where they're sitting and talking. And in Jerry Maguire, it feels like you're watching a movie yeah. version of it. And in this, it, it really does feel like what it would be like to be sitting on a couch with a kid that you kind of know and that are starting to have a relationship with you know quasi parental relationship with and i think those little humanist moments really also help just carry the film yeah i mean you've got those human moments like between even just listening to the way that um shannon and driver cranston and gosling the way that they talk business you know like they're they're talking about how like okay um i told them that you could do this stunt but hey i got an extra 500 bucks out of it you know half of that goes to me you know like and and you if the one thing i loved when i watched it this time was now that i've watched it so many times i'm looking for little crumbs and when cranston says of course Half of that goes to me. You can see driver point like on, you know, like he knows what he knows what he's about to say as in, you know, because they've been working together so long that every time he gets driver more money, he takes his cut. So it's just, he does, he's not showy about it. His face stays the same way, but he just, he points because he knows the next line that's about to be said by his business partner. Stuff like that is just fan bloody tastic if i had a real bone to pick with this cast it's that it doesn't give oscar isaac and christine hendricks quite enough to do but they still when when they've when they're there like they're they're both a crucial part of the plot and they're there they do what they need to do and they get out so i think that like what i'm taught what i want is a different movie so i can't really hold it against drive that it shuffles isaac and hendricks out of the deck um quickly but it's it's one of those things where it's like i want more scenes with standard i want more scenes with blanche i I don't i don't know i don't know if you read the book or not but i definitely read read the book and and it is very different like the irene is barely in the book and well irene is like actually you know latina in the Mm -hmm. book too so there's like there's a lot of a lot of changes that were made um which I think shows you what Refn was interested in and sure. what uh, the screenwriter was interested in. Um, and whether the screenwriter is the one that did the changes or Refn, who knows, because we all know that like a screenwriter can write one thing and then the director comes in and is like, I want this. And then everything changes and you never know. And I think that's the kind of the richness of the story is that there are so many different threads that you could follow. Like one thing I'm always fascinated with is the pizzeria, right? Yeah. 
Like, yeah. I want to know more about, I want to know more about Albert Brooks and like, how do you end up with this pizzeria? And I used to live in the Valley. So I can tell you, there are a lot of businesses that are fronts for crazy shit. And it's like, that's maybe the whole story, but like, and how he made these like pornographic movies that some people called art in the <laughs> 80s. Like, yeah. that's a whole thing. And was that, I don't really remember that being in the book. So I'm wondering like, was that based on a story someone had or like, you know, was there, is there any ties to real stories that were floating around the business like who knows you're you're on this point so we may as well go down this road albert brooks in this movie holy shit as bernie Rhodes, dude (laughs) first of all first of all the fact that he did i will never forget like awards day awards nomination day and albert brooks does not get nominated Patton oswalt does not get nominated uh, Tilda Swinton does not get nominated. Somebody else big. Oh, Charlize Theron does not get nominated. All these people in these sort of like really out there, non Oscar Beatty things that got all the guild, not guild nominations, but like the critic yeah. laud. Yeah. And then they just get, they just, they just don't make it, you know, over that last hurdle. It's such a, a William Hurt in, um, um, a history of violence kind of performance. Right. Yeah. And yeah. somehow William Hurt managed to get that nomination, but like Albert Brooks didn't. And I don't know. I mean, like, I just want, I just want the nomination from when he, this is the moment when he like flips off the guy at yeah. the pizza place. And <laughs> that, just that alone is fantastic. But then there's the scene where he stabs, like give him an Oscar for stabbing the guy in the eye with a fork. Yeah. Who yeah. could well, do that? And then, and then still seem like a charming guy at the same he had both it's just such a good performance i mean give him an oscar nomination for when driver you know when driver first meets him and and bernie is holding out his hand and driver says my hands are all dirty the way albert brooks says so are mine you know i'm like so good ding like you you almost want you want to like tap like a like a like a a porter bell in that moment because it's like Perfect. Moving on. When when he um towards the end when he's you know you know Brian Cranston is like not gonna make it right yeah and he's just like my name on a car and the way the way he you know says that with such regret that he's done all kinds of stuff with his life and he's done bad things good things whatever and this one little thing would have been cool and he's like it's all gone south now and he still just wants his name on the car and then he's the way that. Like this is a weird thing to say, but the way he murders all the people that he murders in the sure. movie, oh yeah, is in is such different ways of murdering that he, it's I love it. Like this, the stabbing with the fork is like he knows that like he's just got to off this guy. This guy has messed everything up. He's just doing it, you know, partly in a gross way to piss off Nino, right? Yeah. But this other one, like this is his this is his buddy, and. His buddy has gotten in too deep and he just can't carry him anymore. And he does, you know, the, like the pity killing or whatever, as pity as you can when you're like a ruthless mobster who murders people. Um, and it's kind of almost sweet. He always comes into these situations as not like he's not, he's certainly a, a vicious person and a violent person, but he doesn't do it. He's not a sadistic person, you know? And that's, I think that's, that's one of the things that Albert Brooks brings to this part is if you'd flipped it, if you had cast Ron Perlman as Bernie and Albert Brooks as Nino, then Ron Perlman would have brought more of a sadism 
to it and somebody yeah. who you think actually gets something out of the killing. Albert Brooks in that part makes it so much more complex. It, it, it's just so fascinating to watch and to watch him playing off somebody who is so effortlessly cool as Ryan Gosling. And they've just, you know, what are they together for like two scenes? Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's glorious to see that in a movie. It's ugh, so good. It's just, Every every performance is good. And, like, Brian Gosling has, like, three lines in the whole movie or something. <laughs> like, his longest line is the speech he leaves on the phone for um, Irene. And it's it's such a, like, it's bo- his whole language is body language. Like, his whole performance is body language. Yeah. And, and, and staring. Yeah. And it, and you, but you learn so much about him from that it's such a great performance but it's it's one of those you know subtle performances and i feel like subtle performances don't always you know they don't resonate that much with voting bodies unless it's like a subtle performance in a character drama like um you know the visitor yeah where i was surprised that got nominated it's a great performance a subtle performance in a film like this that's not a serious character drama kind of thing. You know, you've got two things against you because it's subtle and it's in a crazy popcorn kind of movie. So I think here now you're, you're kind of touching on my original difficulty with the movie is that it seemed like there were a lot of moments where the film wants you to do some lifting, you know, like there's, there's a lot of moments where, driver is staring or irene is staring or shannon shannon talks a lot and bernie tends to talk a lot but especially driver and irene they spend a lot of the time just giving looks you know what do we think about a movie that wants us to do more lifting is that something that we should expect as moviegoers or like is that a knock against this or is that something that's actually kind of good i think it's something that we aren't used to anymore because in silent films there is discussion in silent films right but right. often a lot of the gist of how characters feel about each other is pantomime, right? And, and gazes and things like that. Um, like Greta Garbo in Flesh and the Devil is a great example of a character where even in terms of silent cinema, she, very few of the intertitles in that movie are her speaking. It's usually the guys that are arguing over her. And her entire arc is based on the way she's looking at these men. Um, and you accept it because it's a silent film and people accepted it then because that was the art uh, as it was in, you know, 1928 or whatever. Um, but when you add that to a film today, we're so used to dialogue and we're so used to um, learning from char- about characters from that and not just from these like silent connections. Right. That it's just not what we're, it's just not what we're used to as, as an audience anymore. But I, I think you have, two strong actors who clearly had chemistry and oh, they so have incredible you are watching chemistry. them. Yeah. yeah. So you are watching them just d- stare at each other, but like it's, it's kind of an honest human interaction because that, I mean, often I don't, I don't know. I don't know about you. I'm just speaking for myself here, but often I get tongue tied around people that I uh, like, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I just, you know, I, I, I do. And I think like that's, I mean, you're right. This is not the kind of movie. This is certainly not the kind of commercial movie that is made all that often in many respects, you know, like a hard R, a short movie, an adult geared movie with 
not a boatload of dialogue and you know when we're when we're forced to sit down into something different it can throw us and i think that's the thing is uh, you know i didn't dislike it but i was thrown i i think i was i came away from it just not knowing how to kind of process what i just seen i mean it, you know it was dropped into the middle of award season two if this had been like a winter movie or or like like, like i mean a january or a february movie i would have just been over the moon it had that september launch because it was an awards contender you won best director at can yeah it competed for the palme d'or so what's What's crazy is that it's this art, it's an art house action film. And we don't have a lot of those where, no. um, you know, bros can love it, right? Yeah. Like someone could go at this movie and all it is that all they love is watching cars and explosions and they'll enjoy it, right? Yeah. And then you have someone like me who cars and explosion is not really what I do. I love weird art house, like depressing romance things, right? <laughs> and right. Like, this movie is like a weird art house depressing romance thing that also has explosions and violence. And so it's, it's this weird hybrid and which is exactly that quote, like pretty in pink with a head smashing and yeah. like blood and cotton candy. It works for me. So you know? speaking of someone like you, I, I do have a key question about this movie, given your uh, particular taste in film. Is this film noir? I say yes. So, Last year, I did a, I, I um, produced a piece for my job that I work for um, about November, as you well know, November, and I wanted to sort of break down uh, the aspects of noir as seen in neo noir, and this was one of the titles that I used as an example, partly because we had it on the service, and partly because obviously I love it, but I think it it one hundred percent fits into the the no, neo-noir i don't I, I mean obviously i wouldn't call it noir i'm kind of of two minds in terms of like is noir only that era or is it a, a mood because i think it's a mood but that film noir is from that era and then neo-noir is sure sure conscious okay. of yeah. what noir was doing even though it's all noir if that makes you could program you could program them together and they would fit um yeah but you well, know yeah but, i but, mean you know, my, my thought is that like the reason I like to say neo noir for the later films is they're conscious of what noir was like the noir era was right, doing, whereas right. the noir era films weren't conscious of what they were doing; they were just doing what they were doing. But it's all noir, in my opinion. So, so like noir era and neo noir era—that's that's what I'm trying to get at here. I think this fits a lot of the various tropes and um, genre characteristics that are that is noir, and part of it is, is you have this anti-hero. You have crime elements. You have um, you don't have a femme fatale, and I don't think that you have to have a femme fatale. But what you do have is a woman who challenges the antihero in to change, right? Right, and that happens a lot. Whether it's uh, you know for the bad, like for the worse, like in you know Phyllis Dietrichson or something, right? Or for the better, which happens um, in you know like there's a lot of films where the the woman comes in and I'm trying to think there's a specific one I'm trying to think of with Ellerine's and I can't remember the name of it, but she's a, a good person trying to like redeem somebody. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And then you get, you kind of get both with, with, with noir and, but then you have, you know, these like shady crime people and you have the, the lights and like neon is such an important element of like specifically like post taxi driver, neo noir, you know, and which is why it was a great double feature with taxi driver. 
Right. I, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, you had double Albert Brooks, so that's a, that's a great double feature right there. It's it's crazy because along with it being neo noir, and um, there are all kinds of great neo noir um, titles out there that I think fit very nicely with noir. And I mean, last year when I did noir November last year, I was going back and forth. I was picking a classic noir and then a neo noir depending on the day. So it was great because I could like watch something like. Uh, you know, like I watched stuff like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and it was and it worked out just great. Um, yes, exactly. That's a great neo noir. Yeah. It was. It was totally um, along with this having all the tropes of neo noir, and this again might be part of why audiences weren't sure what to make of it. It has elements of a western as well. You know, in terms of its its structure, it's kind of like escalating crisis up until like you know that last in this case knife fight, and then a quick exit um you know in terms of characters being morally compromised not necessarily having white hats and black hats i'm sure there's all kinds of classic westerns you could program this back to back with and it would work out beautifully speaking of what do you make of the very very ending because this sort of defies kind of what you expect from a noir and to some extent leans more into how a western would end I mean, it also kind of it, it, it gets back into the the John Hughes bit of it, right? It, it it's it's the mm-hmm. it, it very much is a kind of a fairy tale ending to this very very violent story. It's it's like you know everybody's taken a bite of the poison apple, and now we're all living happily ever after. It's a crazy ending, but it's a crazy film. So I can't, you know, I can't sit here and yeah. like, lob bombs at it. Do you remember what it was like the first time you watched it? Because you have to hold, I think it's about 37 or 38 seconds where you truly think he's dead. Yeah. Like, do, do you remember what that was like when the first time you watched it? I think I thought that the print was stuck. <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that the music was going, I thought I was like, this is a very, very long freeze frame. Man, he really, really likes Ryan Gosling's face. I mean, who doesn't? It's a trippy, trippy, trippy way to end a movie. It's one of the crazier endings I've seen. I'll give you that. It it really, like, the fr- the first time I watched it, like, my roommate and I were sitting there and we were just like, is it is it over? Like... Is he dead? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe. And then, and then you know, then his, he closes his eye. And it's, that's what's great is it's the eye open, not an eye closed and then it opens. It's the opposite of what you even expect because his eyes open the whole time. Yeah. But it's like, is it an eye open because he's gazing or is it an eye open because he's dead? I don't know. And it just, like, you can't, I, the, I just remember not being able to breathe. Like, the whole theater couldn't breathe. No one could breathe. This is great. I, could, I loved it. I, I could see that being used in that, you know, there's that gif that goes around of like the sports bar with the screen and everybody goes nuts. I, I think, I think the, the clip is from like the world cup or something like that. So I could see somebody su- supplanting. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. I could see somebody supplanting him, like that closing his really eyes good. and the, the thing going nuts. Oh, I was going to say, it's still like, to my point, I've seen it, you know, at least 50 times and like, I'm still, I'm waiting <laughs> I know he's gonna I know he's not dead. I've seen the movie, but I'm still waiting and I'm like, just just breathe already. Yeah. It's yeah, it's still really stressful. Yeah, well yeah, that's the thing. Like watching it last night, I remember thinking, I was like, wait, the shot's done now. Shot's done now, shot's done now. How shot's done now. Like <laughs> I, I, I every I swear, every time I see it, it gets like frames longer. Now, this is something that you can speak to much better than I. Um 
this movie seems like it is very, very, very Los Angeles. Oh yeah. It's, it's a great Los Angeles movie. It's, um, I think it's a lot of it is echo park and like that lake where they have the combo where he's like, you know, I drive and then the guy flips him off or whatever. That's, I think that's echo park lake. And a lot of the like apartment building they're in is, is a part of echo park and the, even the grocery store. And then like the having a, the pizzeria, like I said, they're having a pizzeria that's actually a mob front out in the Valley is like really accurate. <laughs> There's a lot of mobsters out there. Right. And they're mostly Russian mob too. Like that's what's out there. Part of what I love about it, especially in the early scene, the beautiful sort of blue greenness of the night with a little bit of that like orange peachy sodium vapor yeah Yeah, the the lights yeah yeah. colors yeah so that's that is very los angeles Mm. when i lived out in the valley there was this um i used to drive from my hotel from my apartment to the movie theater and from the movie theater back to my apartment and usually be driving from the movie theater back to my apartment at night and there's this like storage unit storage unit um that had those same beautiful colored lights and I would have to sit at this, like, the longest, the longest stoplight ever. It was, like, a two-minute stoplight always. But it was okay because it had this beautiful storage unit, which sounds ridiculous. But let me tell you, <laughs> it was gorgeous. And it was that same hues. And and I would just look at it and I'd be happy. Um, and part of what I love about the movie is that it, it he captures that beautiful L.A. night light just perfectly and it feels like somebody who has spent many nights driving around LA and truly like understands that light what it seems like for me as an outsider for for what I what I see in this movie is not the typical Los Angeles that I see in a movie like um, you know, even something like collateral or, you know, heat, um, or, or, you know, even something like Blade Runner, which uses a very different type of Los Angeles. Um, what I see in this movie, Los Angeles 2019, right? I know, I know. Right. Um, I mean, it's, it's it's on fire and everything. Um, what I see in this movie is, um, working class, Los Angeles like I this mm-hmm. this is you know these are the part this is the part of the city where people are not making a whole lot of money they're making just enough they're living just comfortably enough they're dressing in ways that are very very different even like you know the mobsters aren't flashy um you know it's 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 a city of money let us not be unclear about that for all you know in all kinds of industries in los angeles it's a city that's that's been basically built on money but these are not people that have a whole ton of it even the gangsters you know don't have boatloads of it really so you're seeing a setting and a, and, a, and a corner of los angeles that reflects that a whole lot more everything like like you say like the apartment building the pizzeria the that that like you know grocery store that's probably got like six aisles you know like all these spaces that they inhabit the you know the the pawn shop that they knock off the motel that they're hiding out in all of these are very, very working class corners of Los Angeles and the county surrounding it that, 
you know, don't always get explored when Los Angeles is the setting of a film. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. And even uh, the Valley is not often depicted. I think Paul Thomas Anderson probably is one of the only filmmakers who really gets like that aspect of the Valley. Right. Because uh, when you think of the Valley, you think of like Valley Girl or you think of the mansions and stuff that um, is deep in the Valley and where all the TV writers live. The truth is, like, the Valley is a lot of these strip malls and shitty apartment complexes. Like, that that's the bulk of the, of the Valley. Often you only get, you know, the more upper crusty sections of those places. And, and he does a really good job of showcasing not that. I also like that the way that they showcase just Hollywood in general, like, he's a stunt driver, but he's a contract player and he's like signing a form that says if he dies, <laughs> you know, yeah, and he it's just, not their fault. And he just scribbles. Like, he doesn't really give it two thoughts. He's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And he, and he's like, yeah, I got you an extra $500. And you're like, Jesus, <laughs> like, yeah. this is not great. No, even right down to the fact that we're talking about a movie that features car chases and he's a, he's a getaway driver and whatever, like, you know, their cars are part of Los Angeles culture, like few other cities, you know, like, like cars are, are now like ingrained into North American culture in most cities that aren't New York, but especially in Los Angeles. Who Framed Roger Rabbit does a really good job of showcasing this history. So my, I'm like a fifth or sixth generation Los Angelino, and my, my grandmother grew up here in the 20s and 30s. And back in the 20s and 30s, we had um, – the beginnings of public transportation in uh, comparable to what the, what San Francisco has now with like the, um, the trolleys and the um, light rail and things like that. But what happened was post-war they came in with all these, they had all these factories that had been put up to, um, you know, make munitions and, and airplanes and things like that. And they were like, we have to keep up this economy. So they shifted it to making cars and tires. And that's when the lobbyists came in and put in all the freeways and made it a car culture. Oh, okay. So basically money came in, money people were like, we can't stop making money. Yeah. How can we make more money? And that's how we became a car place. And they killed all the public transportation. And then we've only slowly since the eighties started putting back in like the Metro and some of these other things. So to some extent, yes, L.A. is a car culture because we were positioned by money men to be a car culture. Right. And they killed public transportation. It, it sucks. You know, we've been uh, ending these conversations about the best films of the decade by talking about how they reflect their, their time in one way or another. And this is kind of an interesting case because this movie premiered at the very beginning of the decade. So we've got like nine years worth of events in life that we can kind of graft onto this movie. What is it about drive you think that embodies life in the 20 teens? Hmm. That's a question. I definitely, think you can tell that it came out before Occupy. Sure. Right? Like on the tail end, tail, like the beginning of Occupy. Um, like it was already made when Occupy was really, really happening. Yeah. Um, you can feel that because it would have been a totally different, like whole different story with like the LA underground if it was in the middle of that. One thing, like I will say, like Carrie Mulligan made her big debut in 2009, right before the decade. And as far as I'm concerned, 
the only other actress with as many hits as her, and she's not in as nearly as many, she's not as nearly as flawless as Gugu and Bathara. Like, the two of them came out swinging, and they, like, Carrie, I think, is in better films all over, but the two of them, like, never give a bad performance. And So for me, the decade is all about Carrie Mulligan and the fact that she's, like, a genius and just kills it in every single movie that she's in. She is absolutely the kind of actor who, if she is in the movie, I am automatically interested. I mean, shit. This was, like, within the same few months we had her in this movie and Shame. You know, so like you talk, you talk about somebody who had an incredible winter. It was Carrie Mulligan yeah. in 2011. When I thought about my own question, the one thing that popped to mind immediately is that this movie is very much about, in, in a weird way, this movie is about the side hustle. Um, you know, driver mm-hmm. is, you know, he's a stunt driver. Like that, that's, that's his main, his main gig. And he works in Shannon's auto body shop. And that, those two things still don't pay the bills enough. So he has to run, you know, getaway drops and put all these things together to, to make his, you know, his little life cozy. It's not the same as it was. Like he's not doing this for riches. So, you know, he's not, doing these illegal things the same way that Nino and uh, Bernie are, he's just doing it to pay the bills, you know? And that's, yeah, that's what a lot of us have been doing in the last 10 years. You know, we're doing two and three and four things, you know, where we're, you know, in terms of driving or maybe we're lifting or, or, or we're driving Uber and we're working an office job and we, you know, do summers at, you know, the ballpark or whatever. That to me was what this decade was all about is working class now is very, very much about the side hustle. And, you know, hopefully your side hustle is not driving criminals away from scores. But hey, if it is, <laughs> as long as you yeah. pay the bills. We end every uh, f- every feature on the uh, feature dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles with the souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Mariah E. Gates, what would be your souvenir from Drive? I mean... Not to be basic, but I still want—I still want a scorpion jacket. Like, <laughs> I don't know if that's the like, kind of answer you're, no, that's you're a, looking well, for, but like, I—I want—I want that jacket, but I don't want like one of those cheesy internet knockoff ones. No, I no. literally want that jacket. Yeah, I want you, his jacket. Yeah, I want it. Yeah, you you <laughs> want to like miraculously find it in a thrift store one day. Yes. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. Or win it in an auction. I don't care. I want that jacket. <laughs> uh, I love it. Um, I mean, I actually went for something tactile as well. Um, I want driver's watch. Um, he, he takes it off oh, yeah. when, when he's, when he's running, when he's running jobs, he takes it off and he attaches it to the steering wheel. And it's a really great watch. It's got a nice big face. It's got a, like a, uh, leather brown leather band it's a like it's if you were to ask me like what my taste in watch is that's it and yet i don't have one that looks like it i do have four different wristwatches that i toggle between and oddly enough since i've been off work i haven't worn my watch once um but that's uh that's the one thing when i saw him take that watch off i was like oh that was i remember wanting that so that would be my souvenir from uh from drive for sure that is a very very handsome watch and and i mean the jacket is baller too so i can't i can't certainly can't uh <laughs> knock you for that like a lot of a lot of a lot of film bros wore that jacket like for halloween oh, yeah. and it's like I wish I wish I had bought it. I 
you know, when you could still easily get like a replica, maybe I should have bought one. But I didn't have any money back then, so you know. Treat yourself for your you next like do? your next like milestone birthday, like like when you when you turn whatever forty or forty five or whatever. Treat yourself to that jacket for your for your birthday. <laughs> that, that'll <laughs> be your track excuse. It. Exactly. Track it down. Yep. That is Drive. Um, hey, maybe you hate this movie. Maybe you love this movie. Uh, let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, Facebook, all the usual places. What do you think of Nicholas Winning Reppin's Drive? We're going to take a very quick break and come back right after this with the other side. So come on back. We'll talk about more movies right after this. We're back. She's Mariah E. Gates. I'm Ryan McNeil. It is Winchester Chronicles Dispatch number 11. We've been talking about Drive. We've been talking about Los Angeles. We've been talking about Bruce Springsteen. It's been a great night, really. Uh, we might be talking until morning at this rate, but we'll see. Um, this is the other side. This is the section where we talk about um, further reading um, films that uh, have a connection to Drive. Um, you know, it could be a little connection, could be a great big connection um, that we suggest. Um, if you liked the movie, uh, that you can go on to and, and kind of go further down the wormhole. Um, usually I let the guests get started, but today we're going to do something a little different. And I'm going to get started and I'm going to get us going with, I think one of the most obvious connections between drive and the film canon that it was it's put itself into um my brain went back to 1981 went back like 30 years before drive and i thought about michael mann's thief michael mann of course yes michael mann is like a very 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 los angeles director he is a very big los angeles storyteller and you know that certainly starts with Thief uh, back in 1981, um, you know, James Kahn at his James Conniest. It's another heist movie. Yes. Um, it's, Tuesday it's an, Weld. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of welding. If you, if you, if you got a thing for welding. Uh, no, you, no, Tuesday Weld. Oh, yes, yes. No, of course. Jeez, oh, sorry. <laughs> Tuesday Weld, I mean, yes. There's welding also. There is welding, yes. But Tuesday Weld, yeah. Dennis Farina, <laughs> James Belushi, Willie Nelson's in this movie. Um that's uh, so good. It is so good. There's a gorgeous um, Criterion copy of it out there. Um, you know, if, if the Tangerine uh, Dream soundtrack. Yeah. Uh. Um, it's it's a wonderful movie. It's I kind of sometimes think it's a movie that a lot of people don't know well enough. Like I think if people think about Michael Mann, they certainly think about things like Heat. Earlier on, we mentioned Collateral. Uh, Insider is another one of Michael Mann's. I think when it comes to Thief, it's a little bit further back in the rear view mirror it's back when michael mann was kind of doing his his miami vice stuff and and his uh manhunter stuff and that kind of thing but it's a movie it is aged amazingly well like this thing still looks fantastic and i actually got the first time i saw thief i got to see it at the Lightbox in toronto and it was just a gorgeous presentation and yeah if, if you were watching drive you could certainly go on to thief and see you know a lot of the mannerisms in james Kahn are kind of echoed in ryan gosling and yeah definitely that like nighttime los angeles aesthetic i was gonna go with something else as my first one but i'm gonna pig- piggyback off of thief because of tangerine dream and 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 take us to another neighborhood 
in Los Angeles in a film that mostly takes place at night that also happens to be a genre-confused, vaguely romance called Miracle Mile, (laughs) which is another movie that blew my mind when I saw it. Have you seen Miracle Mile? I have not. The beauty of Miracle Mile is that it goes places that I was not expecting. I, I literally... I'm going to hype it rather than telling you what it's about. Cause listeners also Ryan don't read anything about it. Don't just go in knowing that Tangerine dream does the score. And that's all, you know, okay. Um, I first heard about it in a movie called Los Angeles plays itself. And it's a whole documentary about all the times that Los Angeles is itself in movies. Like it's a great, great documentary. And there was one shot in it where I was like, what is this movie? And I had it on my like Kino put it out on a beautiful Blu-ray and I had it on my wish list for years and years and years and I just kept not buying it. Everyone was like, Mariah, this movie's gonna change your life. I wasn't ready for it. And then when I was um knowing I was probably gonna move out of Atlanta soon, I like made a list of like I have to rent these movies from Videodrome. Shout out Videodrome um before I leave this place because I love Videodrome. It's this great video rental store. So I went and got I picked up Miracle Mile. This is like January last year. I watched it all the way through and then immediately restarted it with the audio commentary. <laughs> and then the, and then I bought it on Blu-ray that night. But then while I was waiting for my own copy to <laughs> arrive, the next night, because the rentals are like two days, I think, or three days at the video store, um, I watched it all the way through again and then restarted it and watched it with the other audio commentary because it has two audio commentaries. <laughs> um, and it- then, like... Two days later, the Blu-ray came, and I watched it again. So I watched it, like, five times in, like, four days. Um, it is a perfect movie, and it straddles a couple of genres, and it, it just – it really goes places that you don't expect. But it also is just a beautiful encapsulation of Los Angeles at night. I will have to look for this movie. Okay, that that sounds awesome. Um, I will definitely have to look for that. <laughs> and, I mean, I get Tangerine Dream out of it. My next uh, double feature – with Drive, I think, is another really good modern Los Angeles story. Um, we're not going to talk about it too, too long. It's actually, it's, it's another good neo-noir film, for that matter. Um, not going to talk about it too long, because we actually did a whole episode about this um, uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, when's the last time you watched Destroyer by Karen Kusama? I saw it just the one time in theaters. I love that movie. I, I don't I don't know like how But I really I really liked it. Yeah. I thought. I, I thought without spoiling anything for the listeners, I thought the structure was really smart. Like yeah. I loved the structure. That's all I want to say. Yeah. That's I think I, I think that's that's what I love about it is, you know, 20 years ago or so, a lot of films were trying to hang themselves on a twist. And this film does not exactly play any kind of a twist. It just, like you say, it decides on a certain story structure and runs with that. And it does so, so well. This is another movie with a fantastic little economical cast. Nicole Kidman um, playing very much against type. Um, Toby Kebbell, uh, Tatiana Maslany, Scoot McNary. If Scoot McNary's in a movie, I go. It's it's weird. I think I'm probably the only person in the world aside from like Scoot's mom who says that. But Scoot McNary is like one of my favorite modern character actors. Um, Bradley Whitford's awesome in this movie. Sebastian Stan is. I think we discussed this the last time you were talking about Scoot. Um, cause I'm pretty sure I talked to you about this, but he, he is the like lead of death 
Seth Cab for Cuties music video for a movie script ending. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. One of I, his I do earliest, like, earliest works. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think, you know, we were talking about He's good. Uh, this, this whole decade for me has been the decade of being educated on Scoot McNary. Like I, when I saw monsters in 2010, <laughs> ever since then, it's been all Scoot all the time. Um, Karen Kusuma is the director of destroyer. Um, she, no, she knows um, how to direct uh, an action movie, you know, like this movie has an amazingly tense shootout in its, in its core. Um, and it's just, I think it would make an amazing marriage with drive because just like drive is very economical and powerful in the way that it uses its action and its violence destroyer same thing every time guns go off you can count the rounds and every single one of them they make it count i love this movie so much and i think it's just tragically underrated so my next one is kind of a bit on the nose um it's called the driver (laughs) and it's uh, it's a 1978 neo-noir by Walter Hill um, that definitely, like, there are homages in Drive, not just the fact that the guy's name is the driver in Drive. Um, but it has a similar, like, on paper, they look like they're the same movie. In reality, they're not anywhere near the same movie. Um, just on paper, they sound very similar where it's a driver and like a mobster and a girl and Los Angeles at night and all of that. But other than, other than those like superficial things on top, it's a totally different movie, like in terms of what it's trying to do thematically, but it definitely hits like that beautiful encapsulation of, of LA at night and those neo-noir existential themes about struggle between goodness and and doing bad things and the easy way out and the you know life of crime ryan o'neill is not always the greatest actor right but sometimes good and when he's good he's really good and i would put this on the on the like barry linden you know paper moon side of ryan o'neill's performances and not on the um you know, like love story side of things. Okay. Um, it also has a, a great supporting performance from Bruce Dern being very Bruce Derny. And then the <laughs> girl in it is Isabella Adjani and she's just like super hot and a wonderfully layered actress. And so you get a lot from her. Um, and again, it's another one. It's very economical. It's 90 minutes. And um, I think you can really see how, you take a movie like this and something like pretty and pink and sort of throw it in a blender and you get drive. <laughs> um, it's funny because, you know, here we are 10 years later or so after, after drive has come out and I've known from the get go that it was very much um, influenced and in, in cribbing the driver from 78. And yet all this time, I still have never caught up with the driver. One of the main differences is like, you Everything in Drive is in that underworld space. Right. And in the Driver, you get a little more in that neo-noir. Here's that like there's a detective layer and a police layer to it. Um, So one of the things that takes, I think, takes Drive in a further step away from noir even is that it, it does completely strip out the law altogether. Like there is no there is no one investigating anybody 
right? Any of the illegal activities in the only cops you see in all of drive pretty much are the ones at the very beginning that are chasing right. him at the getaway to right. Staples Center, right? Well, my last uh, other side selection for drive, um, uh, this one's again a little on the nose, but uh, I, I think it, it's one that if people haven't seen after coming away from drive, it's the perfect excuse. Um, I went back a little bit further. I went back to 67 um, and I got out of America as well. Um, I thought about Le Samurai directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. Um, another influence that Winding Refn has, has uh, cited as his, uh, you know, one of his like little cheat sheets for drive. Um, it's a French, uh, again, neo-noir um, with a great performance by uh, Alain Delon kind of like driver he's another like he's kind of like a monk you know like he doesn't do a whole lot of talking there's a lot of quiet contemplation in that movie as well um another movie that's really really economical in terms of everything that it does it's in and out in 100 minutes um gorgeous gorgeous just really cool 1960s french aesthetic um you love this movie i'm sure you know not so much <laughs> not not really. I, I watched a bunch of the Jean-Pierre Melville films um, when Filmstruck was closing down. And he's one of those guys where I think tech, as a technical filmmaker, I, I, I can get behind what the images that he's created. But as a, like a, the thematic gist of his, what he has to say, I don't really care for. Right that make sense yeah i'm i mean like you're you're it's kind of funny because you're describing my initial reaction with drive so i can i can <laughs> totally get it um i think what's cool though about uh Le samurai as a as a selection is you can kind of draw a straight line because Le samurai influenced driver driver influenced drive um you know there's there's all these kind of other little uh, other offshoots that had the same kind of core tone to them. Everything from the American to John Woo's The Killer. Um, all these kinds of things kind of seem to stem from this one movie. It's weird sometimes how, like, you know, one piece can kind of have all these weird descendants that you wouldn't, you know, I don't think that Melville was like aiming to be influential when he made this movie. It's just a, you know, it, it's, it's French and all, but it's not like highfalutin French, like, you know, something like Breathless or, or, or one of those. It's just, you know, it's, it's just like a crime movie that where they happen to speak French. Uh, and yet it, it has all this influence on all these other movies. You got one more before we, uh, before we call it a night. My, so, okay, my last one, yeah. we're just going full, like, I'm just going de deep into like Los Angeles at night. And sure. that's the only real connection here to drive. But uh, it's also a movie that I got obsessed with the first time I watched it and then watched it subsequently like 8,000 times. Um, it's called Modern Girls. It's from 1986 and it has one of the greatest posters of all time. Like, just look the poster up and you'll be like, damn, it's a great poster. Um, it's Virginia Madsen, Daphne, Daphne Zuniga, Cynthia, Cynthia Gibb, very 80s cast. And they're like three girls who live together. Oh, man. And they go out they go out for the night and one of them ends up like they have a date and the date is, is Clayton Roner. And he's like in every mid eighties movie, he's really hot in every mid eighties movie. Um, but cause he's always like the hot, hot guy. And but the one girl like has already left. And so they're all stuck with him. And then he's the only one with a car and that, that leads into the whole LA car culture. And so he's driving them to find this other girl 
But then there's like a rock star who shows up who's also played by Clayton Roner, and then they're trying <laughs> to find the rock star again. And it just it's one of those one crazy night movies, but it has a lot of great LAisms. Like at one point they're trying to park a car and there's like this shot of all the different signs talking about the way like you're trying to decipher the street signs, figure out if you could actually park your car there or not. And that's very true to LA. Like you, it's really hard to know when you can park your car where um, the street signs are like in Aramaic and it has like that neon and there's parts where they're, they're <laughs> that's when they really are. There's parts where they're driving on the freeway. And then there's other parts where they're just like walking down Hollywood Boulevard. And then on top of all of that, I think if, if listeners, can remember all the way back to the beginning um, to the first segment when I was saying that the only uh, phrase I can say in Arabic is Aladab um, al-Mukarin, which means comparative literature, because that's what I studied in college. The character in the film, Daphne Zuniga, there's a joke at one point because she studied comparative literature. Okay. <laughs> and when they get to that moment, I was like, oh my god, this movie is made for me. Um it's just lovely. And it's a lovely look at like a gri- slightly grimier um, 80s Los Angeles. It doesn't quite exist anymore. Yeah, it's it's one of these movies that it's so this movie was released in 1986, um, you know, yep. released by studios that are probably gone belly up like Atlantic Entertainment. Yeah, they're gone, totally yeah. gone. And, you know, yeah. like finding it now is going to be a trick. And, and it seems crazy because it's like. I'm, I'm at the very least no, it's curious. On, it's actually I'm pretty sure it's Kino put it okay. out on Blu-ray. So oh shit, okay. Um, yeah, because I have it on Blu-ray, so oh, it's, okay. it's available. I mean, and, uh, yeah, and Kino it's... is doing you know the Lord's work out there, getting all basically things like Atlantic releasing. Like if Ke- if a boutique like Kino didn't go through and save those movies from Abyss, we wouldn't have them anymore. Yeah. Um. So I'm like I'm very grateful for that. Well, awesome. And I rewatched it many times since I first watched it, and it's another one that like I know everything's going to happen in it, and I'm still like, oh shit, are they going to get out of this shenanigans? It's like an LA version <laughs> of uh, it's like an LA version of After Hours. It very much is like if um, After Hours and Valley Girl had a baby. Oh man, they should have put that. Put that on the poster. This movie, and those are both movies that I love. Yeah. So okay, it's why I love oh, this movie, man. obviously. Well, thank you. You've and given me. And it has me... a Depeche Mode song. Oh my god! This you, an you, amazing yeah. Depeche Mode. Song. I need to see this movie. Yeah. All right. You, that, yeah. Yeah. So you know, you've given me like a whole <laughs> lot of movies that I need to watch. Plus, I need to learn a language. Yeah. I mean, it's it's easy. Of you course. Got this. There we go. <laughs> that is the eleventh dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles. I'm so thankful for Mariah for coming by. Come on back Monday, August twenty fourth for our twelfth dispatch. I'm not sure what we're discussing yet, but we'll pick it sometime over the next two weeks um, and uh, close out the summer before we get ready for TIFF um, and potentially a new batch of Winchester Chronicles in October or potentially return to new releases. You let me know. Mariah's work can be found at cinema-fanatic.com. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Um, I am old films flicker literally anywhere that you can find me on the internet. So that would be like Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr. I am on Letterboxd, but I don't use it. But I have, I'm, I'm hoarding that name because I don't want anyone else to have it. So you can follow me. There's like, <laughs> I have like 800 followers on, on Letterboxd. I haven't done anything on there, but I've had the account for like 10 years so no one else can have it you should like post um, one entry and see and just like watch your following go nuts i have, I have my four favorite movies on there you know because that's there the whole thing yeah and 
I mean, they aren't my favorite 100%, but it's my four favorite films by women. Oh, that works. And one of them is my actual favorite movie. Um, And I want to point out, because I have a microphone here, um, that Old Film Slicker is a song lyric. And if anybody knows what the song lyric is from, you can be my best friend. But it it actually had nothing to do with movies when I came up with the handle. See, now you're going to have me racking my brain. And I can't Google. That's cheating. Yeah, you gotta find it. Gotta figure it out. Yeah. Okay, I'll see what I can do. My site is thematinee.ca. <laughs> For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on all the usual platforms. Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple. Uh, everything gives you handy ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. If my show is not on your platform of choice, please let me know and uh, I'll do my best to put it there. Uh, if you want to drop by and do an episode of the Winchester Chronicles uh, about one of the decade's best film or you have feedback on Drive, let me know. You can email me, ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, Mariah E. Gates? Honestly, I just want to watch Drive again. <laughs> I'm probably going to do that. Or I'm going to at least, at the very least, I'm going to put the soundtrack on my stereo when we're done and just blare it really loud for my neighbors. I might do that. That might be more satisfying, actually. Just listen to the soundtrack at all times. And you'll be good. Uh, yeah, I, I think <laughs> this episode will definitely need to end with some tunes from Drive instead of my normal sign-off music. So enjoy the music, folks. For Mariah, I'm Ryan. Wash your hands and call your person. Mm-hmm.